Well, it was fun to have uh, all the kids in and Palm Sunday. And uh, uh, we have been studying through 1 Corinthians. Um, this is family Sunday, so everybody's staying. <laughs> uh, we've been studying through 1 Corinthians, and uh, we are going to take a break this Sunday and look at uh, the triumphal entry. And I, I count it as a privilege that we have to take a break and give special focus and attention on Easter week. Uh, maybe you have been observing Lent, which is 40 days uh, before uh, Good Friday. And I encourage that as well. I uh, actually grew up in a, a church tradition that uh, I was kind of oblivious to Lent. Uh, I, I, I grew up in an area where there were a lot of Catholics, and so I knew that we had extra special uh, fish fries on Friday. Uh, and I wasn't sure why, but I enjoyed those. Uh, and, and so it was just part of my tradition, and my, my father was the pastor, and we didn't make a big deal about Lent. Um, but uh, as I've gotten older and understood it, you know, Easter is the most important. It is the highlight of our calendar, Good Friday and Easter. It is technically... Well, you know, almost a, maybe a notch above Christmas, uh, a big event. Because as Paul would say, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then all is vanity. Everything rides on what happened when Jesus went to the cross and when he rose from the dead and what it means, its significance for us. And so this is an extremely important week. I hope that you've been meditating and thinking about it and maybe going back in the Gospels and reading of the last week of Jesus' life and in all four counts of the Gospel. And I wanted to take a break from our 1 Corinthians and look at the triumphal entry. I think that one of the reasons we value the Scriptures so much is because we don't we don't ever fully grasp the magnitude of the salvation of the gospel and the work of God in his kingdom. Now, we'll grasp it one day when we stand before him. But here, as we journey through this land, we, we want to and should be hungering and thirsting after the scriptures because there's more and more that we learn about the wonder of God's grace and the marvelous characteristics of his unfolding plan to us and as we look at the triumphal entry I find this to be in one of those uh, categories that we as Christians evangelicals sometimes have trouble with and so I take it as an opportunity for us to rethink to think anew, look at this with a new perspective, to understand this. And I'll, I want you to know that uh, I didn't come up with some of this stuff. I'm, I've actually read a very good book that I enjoy. I don't subscribe to everything in the book, but it's by N.T. Wright, When God Became King. 
And he's emphasizing in this book and, uh, the, the truth that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And sometimes we as evangelicals, we don't quite connect with that as we should. We don't fully grasp grasp the unfolding of the Old Testament into the New and the place at which Jesus stood and what He really came to accomplish. We're always learning and reviewing that. Um, He uses the illustration of uh, a stereo system. I remember when I first got my first stereo system. And uh, I don't know if it was just in the day they invented it or not. It might have been. I don't know. Uh, But uh, before that, it was just um, mono sound. And then there was stereophonic sound. And I remember as a kid sitting by my grandfather uh, trying to explain to me what is stereo and what is so wonderful about it because he was big into recordings and all these kinds of things. And, you know, he would say, you sit in front of the speakers. And if you close your eyes, there's a difference in the sound coming through. It it will hit you. And if you close your eyes and think about the band, you can see the singer in the middle. You can see the drums off or the bass player off over here. And you can hear and you kind of pick up on what is the fullness of the sound and how it comes. I thought that was fascinating. Even though I got a cheap little stereo system, I still liked it (laughs) after I heard the explanation. Well, when we think about the gospel, what N.T. Wright argues is that there are four major sounds. And I'll I'll admit to you, I'm changing the four speakers from what N.T. Wright's suggesting, but I like the idea that there is this quadraphonic sound. And it kind of lines up with four Gospels, right? But it's not necessarily that, but there are these sounds. and, And we as the church, as evangelicals, have sought to understand the Gospel, have sought to understand what it is that God was doing in Christ. And we've kind of camped on, if you look at even the early creeds of the church, we camped on the idea that Jesus came incarnate as the Son of God. And we emphasize that not only was He the Son, it was God in the flesh incarnate. God coming as a Savior. And that is extremely important. And I I wouldn't downplay that at all. That is a sound of the Gospel we should hear. And then we've emphasized the cross where we were guilty, we were sinners. Jesus came as the Son of God, as the perfect, spotless Son of God, never having sinned and yet going to the cross and bearing the punishment, the experience of judgment from God for sin in our place. Certainly that is the sound of the gospel. And then his resurrection, the day of victory, the day of hope, the anticipation of life after death, the anticipation of living in his kingdom forever, looking for his return. These three sounds we do have, and and if you were to sit down and write out, what is the gospel? I wouldn't be surprised if you hit all three of those. But maybe there is a sound that we've not heard as well. Maybe we've let those three sounds drown out a sound that we haven't heard as well. 
And that's what I think the triumphal entry points us to. And I've called the sermon title, Christ as King. And there is a sense in which I want for us to hear the full sound of the gospel. I want for myself to hear and understand the full sound of the gospel. That's why we need to read the gospels over and over. We need to hear again, anew and afresh. But Christ as King, fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Old Testament leading up to the time that He arrives and establishing God's kingdom for eternity is a sound that is important, that must be heard. Because if we don't, we tend to think of everything in our Christian life as God loves us. He came into the world to save us. He bore the penalty for my sin, and now I'm just waiting to go to heaven when He turns again in the resurrection. All of those things are true, but that's not the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel is that God came into this world as the one and only uh, Savior and Lord who could save us. And indeed, He was God incarnate. He was unique. He was sinless. But He came to bring God's kingdom. And sometimes that's where we miss it. We don't realize what God was doing in Christ when He was coming into the world to pay the penalty for our sin, to give us hope beyond the grave. Indeed, it was God with His love for us. But what was Jesus doing when He was here? What is He expecting us to do while He has given us grace? I think we don't think about it enough. We recognize Him as King. We recognize Him as Lord and Master. And He demonstrated that in His life by fulfilling all the Old Testament expectations. When the Jewish people saw that Jesus was proclaiming to be Messiah, they understood that that meant He was the Anointed One. And all that that meant... Now, we oftentimes just think it means, wow, that, that brings us salvation. That brings us forgiveness. Yes. And I'm discouraged when I hear people say, well, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I've received salvation, and I'm waiting for that day. Oh, yes, I dabble in sin, but uh, no one's perfect. Or I've even heard someone say, well, I would rather get out of this marriage and be in another marriage and God will forgive me, because that's what He does. It's just about His grace, His love for us. That's why He came to the world, and that's why He died, and that's why I look for heaven. What about here, and what about now? What about here, right? What about now is we have a king that is arrived. We have a Lord and a master. And God is in the business of bringing all principalities, all authorities under the feet of that king. And that includes your heart, your motivations, your life. That includes my heart, my motivations, my life. Everything about it is to be under our king. We don't just have a savior that arrived. We have a king that arrived. And I think that sometimes... People in the world, even when we're sharing the gospel, might think, well, that's a nice religious thing for you. You need to get your sins forgiven, and that makes you feel better. That's good. 
But I want to say the other part of the gospel is not just the Savior that arrived. It's a king that arrived. And if you find someday that you are outside of his authority, if you are running up against his plans and his purposes, you are not submissive to that king. It's not a good day for you. So there is great importance to the truth that Christ is king. And as we think about this week, we should think about the grace of God. We should think about his sacrifice and his love for us. But we should also think that he came to establish a kingdom and to be a king of his people. And when we read the triumphal entry, we're seeing the picture of our king. Now, what made it difficult for the Jewish people? What made it difficult for the disciples? What makes it difficult for us? Is oftentimes his kingship is not the kind of kingship we like. His kingdom isn't built like the human kingdoms where there is power and authority and blessing and might. What we see in the king Jesus is a coming to serve, is a coming to give, is a coming to yield his, his rights for the benefit of another, to take persecution, reviling, misunderstanding, opposition for the purpose of the kingdom. And that's what he's calling us to do as well. Sometimes we're not comfortable with that. So as we move through this week and we think about what Jesus did, let us think about our king. Let us look at the triumphal entry. Let me tease some of these thoughts out for you because I think it's exactly where we need to be looking in our understanding of who Jesus is in the fulfillment of the Jewish expectations, the promises of God to the Jewish nation, and the culmination of God's kingdom with God's king and the subjects of that kingdom. So Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead, went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? Sure is a lot of information about untying a colt. Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it, and as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, oh, where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, yeah, 
The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees said in the crowd, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As we look at this passage, there are three lessons. First, we must understand the circumstances of the triumphal entry. Isn't it interesting that there is quite a bit of description about this, what seems to be a small, insignificant event in the life of Jesus? He's going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Everybody's going to Jerusalem. There seems to be this crowd around Jesus. There's some expectation around Jesus. But we're not told about how big this is. And it seems to be kind of sporadic, unplanned. It just kind of springs up in the spur of the moment. Jesus went to Bethpage and then to Bethany. And they're about, you know, about a couple of miles apart. And so they were traveling and this entourage. And they get to Bethpage and they come to the hill called the Mount of Olives. And this road is descending. And Jesus at that moment says, hey, i got two disciples. I'm going to send you off to get this colt. Now for us, we're saying, okay, yeah, this is an interesting story, I guess. But there is, in understanding the circumstances of this, there is this tradition of going to Jerusalem for the Passover. There's this tradition of singing psalms, and especially 118, singing enthusiastically and celebrating God's deliverance of the people. And as Jesus is doing that, he kind of sets up this situation in the midst of this procession. And there have been discussions. Did Jesus know about this? Did Jesus plan ahead? Did he make arrangements and that he had this all planned out? Or was this Jesus' knowledge, his divine understanding of the moment that would come together for his disciples to go? I think that he has divine knowledge, and this is something that he has brought together and he knows will fall into place. Just as there is this hint of divine determination when the Pharisees say, stop your disciples from crying out, and Jesus says, no, if they don't cry out, the stones will cry out. There's very much this indication that God is standing behind this event. And we see that in the details. But if we look at this a little deeper, second, we must understand the deeper meaning of Christ as king in this entry. As we look at this, there are two Old Testament events that kind of form a background to a triumphal entry or an entry of this kind that, that points to the arrival of a king. One of the more famous ones is in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32 through 39, where Solomon is uh, presented as the king of Israel following in the footsteps of David. Adonijah... Solomon's brother 
saw the opportunity and set himself up as a king at the exact same time. He called some of the leaders and the, and the leaders of the military together and he set himself up as king and made a pronouncement that he is the king and, and Bathsheba went in and told David that Adonijah is doing this. And David said, I had promised the kingship to my son Solomon. And so in the face and, count, and countering this response by Adonijah, David says, bring in Nathan the prophet, bring in uh, my military advisors, bring in my counselors, and bring Solomon into this place and go get my colt and bring my colt here and we will put Solomon on that colt and we will march him through the city and we will take him to the throne and he will sit upon that throne. And when they did that and as they did that, the whole nation of Israel, even Adonijah himself, realized this is the king. That's one story. There's another story. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, and this has to do with Jehu. And this is uh, a long, complicated story. I'd invite you to go back and read it. But Jehu was a commander of the army in the day of Ahab, King Ahab. And he had a wife named Jezebel. I don't know if you remember that name. There aren't too many people named Jezebel these days. And if they are, they're called Jezebel as a term of derision. But Jezebel stood against the Lord God, supported the Baal worship in the nation of Israel, sought to persecute God's servants. And I don't know if you remember, but... Jehu came in and because there was a violation, significant violation, doesn't seem significant to us, but it was a significant violation. Ahab longed for Naboth's vineyard that was adjacent to his, his home. But that land was given to that family. It was an allotment that was given of all the lands to God's the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel, and Naboth was hanging on to that. And it was decided by the king and at Jezebel's encouragement, you could take that land, it's you're the king. And so he had Naboth killed, took that land. And the prophet spoke to Ahab that he will die because of that. Jehu was the one that executed that judgment, uh, slew uh, Ahab. But also, you remember, I don't know if you remember, but the dramatic story of Jehu riding up to the tower with Jezebel in there. And as he rides up, he says, where is Jezebel? And she's in the tower. He says, cast her down. And they cast her from that tower. And the dogs licked her blood as it was prophesied they would. On the heels of that, there were still battles raging, but the word of the Lord came that Jehu was to be the king of Israel. And the people affirmed that word, and they came around Jehu, and they took their cloaks off, and they laid them at Jehu's feet so that he could procession on the top of their clothing. The second picture of what happened here in the triumphal entry of Jesus. But that's not all. 
There's more here. All of these pictures are coming together, and what are they pointing to? They're pointing to a king. So on the, the more Old Testament theological points of view, I'd like to take you to uh, notice as we were reading, there's this, this conversation about untying the cult. And if someone sees you untying the cult, they'll ask you what you say, and you say the Lord has need of it. Then you untie the cult and take the cult to... What's with all this untying stuff? I want to take you to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49 is a chapter where Jacob is... Israel, Jacob, is on his deathbed. And he's giving his blessings to his children. And I can't help but think that this situation refers back to some of the hints found in this blessing very early on that God was promising to this family. And this family is the family of Judah, the family of Judah, the line of Judah, where the kings come from, where David comes from, where Jesus stands in. And if we look at verses 9 through 11, you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter, that is, the king's royal scepter. I can't think of another name. <laughs> the king's royal scepter is in his hand. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will, verse 11, tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branches, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. What we have here is the prophecy coming true. Not an exact, but through the eyes of faith, because there is something uniquely different about this. Because in, in Genesis chapter 49, it's talking about the scepter the king will have. It will never depart. The one that will receive it will rule forever. And he will have an abundance. He will take his donkey to the vineyard and tie it down and go in and, and enjoy himself with abundance of grapes. The blood of the grapes. But Jesus is that one. I think that's why this text is in here. That's why Jesus told his disciples to go get that colt. That's why the people put the coats down and he walked towards Jerusalem because he was fulfilling that text. And there was the tethering and untethering of the colt. And it was different though. It wasn't that Jesus was coming as the conquering king at this moment. He was coming as the suffering king. It, he indeed was turning every idea and attitude about the kingship of the Messiah upside down for the people. Even so much so for the disciples who scattered when he was arrested and feared for their lives and saw their, their Savior, their King, their Jesus being crucified. They didn't understand. 
But Jesus was the king nonetheless. We see the other texts of Scripture referring to Zechariah 9.9, a prophecy of the Messiah when he would come. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here we have clear indication of the importance of this event in terms of the prophecy and expectation of the Messiah, the king. Remember, 2 Samuel chapter 7 the Davidic covenant, when David receives a promise that he will have a descendant who will be the son of God. And that when he reigns and rules, his reign will be forever. Jesus in the triumphal entry is fulfilling the wealth of expectation and promise of the Old Testament. Jesus in the triumphal entry for us, remember if you look at John, the Gospel of John, where, G, where John describes the triumphal entry, he says that the disciples at the moment did not understand. They did not got grasp what was happening. But surely we, who have the privilege of God's the scriptures and can study and understand the unfolding and the events and the happenings of this week as we enter into this Easter season, we can, can perceive in new ways, even in better ways than the disciples did at that moment, the significance of this Jesus. That He is a Savior. He is the Lord. He is the King. And God is going to establish His Son as King over all. That's an awesome thing. It's an awesome promise. I love verse 37 and 38. When He came near the place where the road goes down the mountain, of olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Sounds an awful lot like that Christmas declaration that the angels made when Jesus was born. But what it is also a declaration that we should be making over and over in our lives. It's why we gather here to worship. It's what makes us distinct as the people, as a church of God. We are the redeemed ones, and we believe in this Jesus. He is the King. And when we come together, we certainly enjoy worshiping together and praying together and joy fellowship together and spending time together. Those are all good and great things. But never forget that the other thing that we do is we come here to proclaim in our singing, in our praise, in our being together, in our holding each other accountable, we come here to proclaim Jesus is king. And he's king forever. And he's king in our lives. And that's why we're here, to be his subjects. Oh, that the church, our church, we as his people would be a, a, a picture 
of His reign in our lives. There's nothing, nothing more important than the reign of Jesus as our King. And in His reigning, He brought together kingdom and cross. He gave Himself fully so that we could be completely forgiven and made new by His sacrifice on the cross. He paid the penalty. He walked a dark road to bring grace and forgiveness to each and every one of us. But that wasn't just so that we would enjoy salvation. He was building a kingdom. And He was building a kingdom of subjects, of people precious to Him that would live as kingdom people. That's what we're doing here together. That's what the Christian life is about. And I'm totally confused when people think, well, I got saved and I, you know, and I know that I dabble in sin, but you know, I'm going to get to heaven someday and that's what I'm hoping. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we serve a risen king who is a king indeed. And God was so committed to declaring Jesus the king that if the people didn't do it that day the rocks would cry out oh that we would have hearts and lives of people who would be subjects of his that would magnify him that would declare him king and especially this week as we think about all that he has done for us so we understand the deeper meaning of the cross, of Christ as our king. We must, third, adjust our gospel understanding to the truth of Christ as king. One step we must take is the gospel story is the story of Jesus coming to establish his kingdom. Yes, salvation is it. That's how He establishes. Yes, He sacrificed for us. He brought us life. But He came to establish His kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Satan. He will establish His kingdom. And that's what He was up to. And He was making us new so that we would be part of that kingdom. Salvation was brought by the work of Christ. And it's in conjunction with His preaching of the kingdom of God. Sometimes we feel like there's a disconnect. The reality of Jesus arriving as king and inaugurating a kingdom is the reality of calling forth subjects in his kingdom who anticipate his final kingdom but who live with a heart bowed to our king today and every day. Second, being the subjects of King Jesus, where he is, where God is working to put all things under the feet of Jesus, we as his servants work in tandem with that. We work to submit ourselves to under the feet of Jesus. We work in this world against uh, unrighteousness and wickedness and the evil schemes of the world around us to bring all things under submission to and under the feet of Jesus. He is our king. The surrender of our members, of our bodies, to righteousness is not just because we want to. It is because Christ is our King and we are His. We are His subjects. 
Gospel living is kingdom living now. Third step, we need to be on kingdom mission. Sending people, sending each of us as members of this church, as Christ's body, out into the world to be a demonstration of the the reign and rule of Christ, His righteousness and His truth. We need to be pointing to Jesus and magnifying Him with all of our hearts and all of our lives, all of our values and all of our efforts because the King has arrived. He's not just waiting for Him someday and we're just kind of sitting on the sidelines. No, He's building His kingdom now. We're a part of that kingdom. Fourth, we need to live a life of loving God and loving others. These are the ethics of Christ's kingdom. He demonstrated. He showed it in his life. Oh, that we we would see Christ's life and the triumphal entry as the coming of our King. And the establishment of his reign was through his sacrifice on the cross and the power of God raising him to life which conquers death and sin and the devil and gives that victory to us, his subjects, people of his kingdom. This would take away any idea that there is some disconnect between how we live today and the salvation we, live, we receive in Christ. Because we are His people. Cross and kingdom hang together. Just as God's love and salvation, victory, hangs together in the resurrection. What we need to hear is the beauty of the gospel. We can't let one speaker drown out others. We must give attention to being open to what God is showing us in the revelation of Scripture, the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of His kingdom, so that we can be full as His subjects. Oh, that that would be the road we are on. Set your heart upon knowing our King, our Savior, our Lord, and our ultimate Deliverer. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are gracious and good. And Lord, as we went our own way, as humanity chose sin over obedience to you and and hearing your word, and we continue to seek to build our own kingdoms, Lord, you were gracious not letting us alone, but you came into this world to build your own kingdom, to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament, to bring full salvation and forgiveness and new life. Lord, may we never take these riches for granted. May they be the joy of our heart, and may we surrender ourselves to you. As, our, as your subjects, to do your will in our lives and in our community and in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.